Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Palm Sunday, I want to focus on the strangest part of the story, which is the donkey. Uh, in, in past Palm Sunday sermons, I've referenced the donkey and its significance, but I want to preach exclusively to it this morning. At some point in history, uh, some point in church history, it was determined that Palm Sunday is preferable to Donkey Sunday, and I think that was probably a pretty good call. But the donkey actually is the central focus of the story. It's the focus of the prophecy from Zechariah. It's it's obviously a focus of Jesus here where he's given these instructions uh, to go get the donkey. He needs a donkey. It shows up in all the gospels. Um, The story is all about Jesus on a donkey. So what's with the donkey? It's important to note that we do associate things with different animals. Um, Last week, in the 11 o'clock service, some of you may have been there, but in the 11 o'clock service last week, our previous uh, senior minister, John Sartell, uh, was with us. Um, Some of you know John, uh, many of you don't anymore, um, but you just need to know that John is kind of the picture of uh, stereotypical masculinity, large, commanding presence, booming voice, all of that. And not surprisingly, John had a prize purebred champion hunting dog named Jack. When you, when you look at Jack, you think an owner like John. Well, when I worked for John, I had Bailey. Bailey was the opposite of Jack. Bailey was a cute little fluff ball lap dog that brought joy to Abby and shame to me. <laughs> so I'm newly hired at the church. Some of you have heard this story before. I'm newly hired at the church, and Sartell wants to have the new youth pastor and his wife over for dinner to get to know us better. Abby wants to bring Bailey with us uh, because she thinks it'd be fun for Bailey to meet Jack and all that. So you have to picture, I'm young, uh, fresh out of seminary, insecure, heard legendary stories about John Sartell, you know, fighting liberalism and forming the PCA. And I find myself knocking on his door holding this oversized gerbil in my arms John opens the door, looks at me, looks at my dog, direct quote, what's that? I say, it's our dog, Bailey. Meet Bailey. John says, well, take her out to the backyard. Let's, let's, let's let her meet Jack. So we go to the backyard. John lets Jack out. And in the most alpha male move ever, Jack runs over to Bailey, lifts his leg, and pees on my dog. <laughs> True story. Then John yells, boy, Jack. 
the point I'm making is we, ha- we do have these, these undeniable built-in associations with animals, don't we? Jesus says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. The lion is the king of the jungle. The eagle is our symbol of American patriotism. If you go to Keeneland, when it opens next week, you will see these majestic thoroughbreds that are just a picture of power and strength and nobility. They call it the sport of kings for a reason. Question, what do you think about when you think of a donkey? A lot of things, but none of them worthy of what we call the triumphal entry. Would it be called the sport of kings if we got together to watch donkeys race around Keeneland's track? And yet this is the king of kings, making his triumphal entry into the city of kings. Why is he on a donkey? Let's find out. Donkey's giving us a picture of three things this morning about our Savior. The humility of our king, the burden of our king, and the victory of our king. Let's start with the humility. Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you, if anybody says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. It says the Lord needs these donkeys. Why does Jesus need these donkeys? Because Zechariah said it would happen this way. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now what we need to see is that this wasn't just a quirky prophecy to identify who the Messiah was. We need to go deeper and appreciate the imagery of the prophecy. Why was it ordained this way, in other words? Behold, Your king is coming to you. You know, that's not necessarily good news. For what purpose does he come? That's the question of questions, right? Does he come to judge? Does he come to smite his enemies in wrath? What is the nature of, behold, your king is coming to you? Jonathan Edwards famously preached a Palm Sunday sermon and used Revelation 19 as his text. The second coming of the king, wherein Edwards made the point, this should be what the triumphal entry looks like. Let me read it for you. Revelation 19, I saw heaven open and behold, not a donkey, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arraigned of fine limb and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If we are honest with ourselves according to a biblical view of fallen humanity and sinfulness, that should be our expectation of the coming king. And yet Zechariah 9.9 says rejoice. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why the rejoicing? Why the singing? Shouldn't we be scared that our king is coming? No, rejoice greatly because your king is not upon a war stallion. He's on a donkey. A young colt, the foal of a donkey. The king comes to us upon a gentle baby donkey. It is almost comical to imagine the king of kings making his triumphal entry on a donkey colt. There is a chance his feet were nearly dragging on the ground. But what we see in this ironic imagery is something beautiful. The humility of our king, which is consistent with the entirety of his life, right? The incarnate God was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. There's nothing noble about his family. He had no possessions, not even a place to lay his head. His friends, were marginal, his friends were the marginalized. He resisted popularity at every turn. He never used his power for self-promotion or self-gain. Perhaps a king on a donkey is unconventional for a normal king, but it perfectly fits our humble king, who came not to be served, but to serve. How? What is this humble service he came to perform? Again, let's look to the donkey. We have seen the humility of the king. Let's look now at the burden of the king. Return to verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A beast of burden. The original audience would have known exactly what that meant in their mind the sole purpose of a donkey was just to carry stuff things too heavy for humans to bear they were the pickup trucks of the day so to speak these beasts of burden so here's the imagery donkeys are beasts of burdens who existed to carry that which was too heavy for humans to care carry well sitting on the beast of burden is our savior Carrying the greatest burden this world has ever known, that which is impossible for us to bear. Heaped upon his shoulders are the sins of all his people, and he is riding into Jerusalem to deliver the package to its rightful end. He will bring the burden before Pilate to be condemned, to the soldiers for its humiliation, to the cross for its damnation, and to the tomb for its extermination. And because he bore that burden, I am able to proclaim this message to you this morning, the unbearable burden, the unbearable heavy load of your sin and shame, the unending pile of guilt from all your transgressions, past, present, and future, has been lifted. I think of John Bunyan's amazing imagery in Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. So the protagonist, as you may know, is fittingly named Christian. And we follow his journey um, to be freed of this enormous burden that he's carrying. It's been strapped to his back, obviously representing his guilt, his sin, and shame. Let me read for you the famous decisive moment when Christian has his burden lifted. He is told that his freedom will be found at the top of this hill. And this is, I'll pick up the story here. Up that way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. 
He ran thus, ascending till he came to a place where there stood a cross, and below at the bottom of the hill a sepulcher. A sepulcher is a fancy word for a tomb. Then just as Christian came to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders, fell from his back, and began to tumble, and so it continued till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and Christian saw it no more. Now listen to his response. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went about singing, Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief within. Till I came hither, what place is this? Here is the beginning of my bliss. Here the burden fell from my back. Here the strings that bound it to me cracked. Blessed cross, blessed grave, but blessed rather be the man that here was put to shame for me. Upon a beast of burden, slowly riding into Jerusalem, is the Savior carrying our burden so that we might be like that. Glad and lightsome and leaping for joy and going about our days singing for freedom. It would be wrong for me, I suppose, to not pause here. I'm assuming this is true for us, but I don't want to make that assumption. Pause here and offer an invitation to those burdened with guilt and shame, to those of you who have yet to hand your burdens to the Savior who is glad to bear them and wants to bear them, to you who are exhausting yourselves trying to carry a load that is far too heavy for you to carry, who are wilting under the weight of accumulated guilt, who have amassed a pile of shame that is exhausting your soul, to the hopelessly burdened, oh, that you would hear the Savior say, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. The reason he can offer you that blessed invitation is because he is willing to bear your burdens. Jesus, upon a beast of burden, is shouting to you, begging you, I'll take them. Let me have them. Let me carry what you cannot carry. And to those who have been to the cross to discover the blessed freedom of Christ, what in heaven's name are you doing trying to carry that which Jesus carried to the grave? There is nothing on your back, so quit slouching. Straighten up your shoulders, lift up your heads, and live. Okay, one more word for us here that will set the stage for next Sunday. The humility of our king, the burden of our king, finally, the victory of our king. Now we get to the actual triumph of the triumphal entry. Verse 8. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there is a seeming contradiction to the story. In one sense, we see a humble gentle king riding into town on a beast of burden, and yet he is received with victorious hysteria. The crowds lay their cloaks on the road before him. This is a sign of submission to his kingship. They're waving palm branches. This is the Jewish national symbol. It was a patriotic moment. They, stop, they shout at the top of the lungs, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is a kingly title given to the Messiah whose kingdom will reign forevermore. They think 
that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem to secure their long-awaited victory, that Jesus is coming in that Revelation 19 sense that I read to destroy the enemies of Israel, to dwell in the temple as the authority over all nations, that this is the day of all days, similarly to how we view the day when Jesus returns. That's what they're thinking in the crowd. And Jesus receives their praise and does nothing to curb their expectations. He does view himself as the victorious king. And guess what? The donkey even communicates that. A king on a donkey wasn't entirely unconventional in those days. Typically, you would find kings traveling on a war horse or a chariot, uh, surrounded by an elite brigade of soldiers like Secret Service who would protect the king from all threats. But there were rare occasions when kings would ride on donkeys. And they would do so as a way to boast of their power, authority, and victory. It was a statement that all is well in this kingdom. There are no wars to fight. There are no threats to my crown. So much so that I will ride along unprotected on a donkey. Meaning, there is a subtle confidence to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Without a sword or chariot or guards to protect him, he is making a statement. No threats, no enemies, I have nothing to fear. But we would say, uh, you have a lot to fear. Friday is coming. You're going to be hanging from a cross forsaken of God. The worst day of history is five days away. And on Saturday, you will be cold and lifeless in a tomb. What's with the confidence? Well, he also knows how the week will end. Easter is coming. He will rise from the dead. He will have his vindication. He will have his victory. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that sin, Satan, and death can do to stop it. He knows as undeniable is the cross that awaits, so undeniable is his resurrection on the third day. So... Because he knows how the week ends, he is able to approach the most horrific suffering and defeat that the world has ever known with this humble confidence about him. And so it is for the followers of Jesus. Easter does not exempt us from suffering, but Easter does transform the way in which we suffer with the promise that suffering will not have the final word. Palm Sunday is a great picture of how we, as followers of Jesus, approach this life now. Jesus facing, approaching the unfathomable sufferings that await him in Jerusalem. And yes, he will weep. It's okay to weep. Yes, he will cry out in agony, and he will bleed, and he will die. But through it all, he is sustained with a peculiar confidence and hope born out of this knowledge. I know how this ends, and it ends with me walking out of a tomb, never to be harmed again. And so it is for us. Like Jesus approaching Jerusalem on this day, we know two things. For certain are before us, death and resurrection, suffering and redemption, Hardship and healing. Now, if we forget the latter, 
and focus only on the former, if we forget the resurrection, the redemption, the healing, and focus only on the death and the suffering and the hardship, then we will not endure those things well. We will fear them. But if we set our hearts upon how this story ends, then we are able to mock them. And so it is in that spirit we now enter into this Holy Week to follow our Savior along his passion. We will gather here for Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, the darkest days the world has ever known. But we will do it knowing how this week ends. A week from today, the sanctuary will be filled with flowers. We will be dressed in our Easter best. Timpani will be stirring. Trumpets will be sounding around this very moment in one week. Joy, joy, joy to the heart, all in this good day is dawning. Friends, that's not just the story of this week. That's the story of your life. You can approach whatever is before you or whatever you are currently battling with the subtle confidence we see of Jesus on a donkey because you know how this ends. Your story ends with your Easter and then a new story begins that never ends. A story made possible by your king on a donkey, your humble, burdened, and victorious king. Let me thank him. Jesus, we are in awe as we watch you enter into this week of your passion. We are humbled. We don't deserve it, but we thank you for it. Remind our hearts afresh. May you, I pray particularly just for this week, that you would renew in us the joy of thy salvation. That you would fall upon our congregation and our people in a fresh way. That on Thursday and Friday we would we would stand amazed at your cross. And, and on Easter week we would just be lifted up into the heavens by your resurrection. Meet your people this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.